Now, I don't want a show of hands, because both this would be an indictment, and second, I don't really want to know, okay? But I'm just going to ask, throw the question out there. How many of you have somewhere in the, in the uh, past, um, even recent past, actually taken a selfie? No hands, no hands. You're going to burst my bubble. Have you, in fact, taken a selfie? Okay. Now, I, I did a little research into this. All right. Um, here's, the, here's the Webster definition of a selfie. Can you believe Webster's got this in there? The Oxford Dictionary's even got it in there. An image that includes oneself, often with another person or as a part of a group, and is taken by oneself using a digital camera, especially for posting on social networks. Do you know how old this is? It's fairly recent, actually. The first known appearance of selfie in written form occurred in 2002 on an Australian news website, but the word didn't see a whole lot of use until 2012. That's not all that long ago. By November 2013, selfie was appearing frequently enough in print and electronic media that the Oxford English Dictionary chose the word as its word of the year. Aren't you proud of us? The announcement itself led to a significant increase in the use of the word by news organizations as the increase uh, was further boosted following December 10th, 2013. You'll remember this, I think. A memorial service for Nelson Mandela at which uh, American President Barack Obama was caught taking a selfie with the Danish Prime Minister and with the British Prime Minister and uh, the word selfie with suggestions of kind of, it kind of took off from there after it was seen that it was okay for the president to take a selfie. So, uh, isn't it interesting? Now, what I want us to deal with here a little bit is that according to Philippians 2, if, I'm, if, I'm, if I can say it right, Jesus came selfless into a selfie world. He came selfless into a very selfie world. Now, we did some background on the book of Philippians last week, so I won't go back into that. But Paul is writing here uh, from prison in part to address the church's problems with interpersonal conflict. But the core of what he had to say is in today's text, beginning especially with verse 5. Um, it's very poetic. Many people think, as do I, uh, that um, that this passage, so if you're reading in the NIV, for instance, you'll notice it's set off in different type and kind of indented. Do you notice that? If you're, if you're reading in the NIV in particular uh, and some others, um, the, the type from verse 5 is kind of set off a little bit differently. Uh, the same thing would be true of Colossians 1, verse 18 through 20. Same thing would be true of some passages in Revelation 4 and Revelation 5 and even John 1. We really believe that by the time the, the uh, New Testament was put together, that these passages, Philippians 2 in particular, were used liturgically. That this was, uh, the reason it's kind of in poetic form here is because it was used when people came together to worship as part of the way that they exalted Jesus, the way they praised Jesus as the Son of God. So when you read, beginning verse uh, 5 or verse 6 down to verse 11, 
Imagine people gathering together for the last 2,000 years using this to chant or to sing in, in praise and adoration of, uh, of our Savior. I, I, I love that thought and I, and I agree with it. Now, I want us to read the first four verses. They are uh, kind of background verses in a way. And, um, um, and then we'll get in from verse 5, kind of pivots us into this poem, so, uh, which is incredibly important. Now, I don't want you to answer now, but did you look up the word that I asked you to look up? Anybody look up the word kenosis? Okay, we're going to deal with it in a little bit. Huh? Okay, we're going to... Don't answer. That's right. Until a minute from now. Okay. Louise, I'll get to you. So you're on the hook now. You're on the hook now, big time. All right, let's go to, to verse 1. Steve Blair, would you read the first four verses to us? Okay, one of the things I want us to set the tone for here is he gives several ifs in this first verse. Do you catch that? First couple of verses, if, if, if. This is what I want you to understand is this is not like me going to Rhonda and saying, if you love me, you'll give me a kiss. Are you following me at all on that? That should have aroused at least a, a lift of an eyebrow, Okay. This is not a, a test of some kind. This is literally this if that's used repeatedly in here. Uh, there's no doubt implied here. Rather, it is used to draw attention to what we already agree upon. Catch that? Okay, so as you're reading through that, um, uh, it kind of offers a, a different perspective here. So uh, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, then he goes on to say, make my joy complete. So the idea here is, this is what we already agree on. Uh, I'm not, we're not taking each other on here. Let's look at what we already agree on. So by the time that he gets to verse 2, he is already dealt with here. Um, what we have in common, and he's going to say in imply here in verse 2 that what you and I have in common is much more important than our differences. A lot more important than our differences. Um, Julie, can I pick on you? Yes. Would you go to Romans 15, 5? I'll have you read it in just a minute. Okay, what we have in common, what we agree upon, if, 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 is a lot more important than what we can't come to agreement on, okay? So, uh, the idea here is, in verse 2, it's interesting to me that he bookends what he's dealing with, with the mind. Uh, it's going to begin and end with thinking, with thought. Paul begins and ends with this activity that he's going to suggest that we do that begins with thought, 
All right. Um, uh, Julie, you got Romans 15, 5? I do. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus. Be like-minded. says the same thing here. If we are like-minded. So the idea here, I think, when he's dealing with some interpersonal relationships here, is the idea that what you think matters, and he's calling them, remember this whole series is about walking in love. The in, in particular here we're dealing with, if you would think like Jesus does, it'll go a lot better. Okay, If you would think like Jesus does, if your mind... And he kind of begins and ends, verse 2, with this idea that to tune your mind to the way Jesus thinks. Now, we're going we're gonna to kind of flesh that out here in a little bit. But look at verse 3 and 4. I believe that verse 3 and 4 is as close to as anywhere else in Scripture uh, as a definition of humility. All right? Let's, I'm going to read it again from the New American Standard. Do nothing... From selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Okay, I warned you we were going to talk about this, didn't I? I okay, sorry, I just warned you we were going to deal with this kind of stuff because it deals here. Now, when he says here, okay... When he says um, um, selfish ambition, he's talking about the opposite of the Christian life. And when we approach things that way, it is always divisive. So if you think about it in your family or in a church or whatever, in some group, if everybody is acting with selfish ambition, the, the possibility of coming together of seeing things like-minded, of being, um, uh, even functioning uh, as one is not going to happen. The second word that he uses here, the second expression, is a vain conceit. The idea of a selfish pursuit of empty praise. It's what I'm going to call the selfie life. Now that doesn't mean, okay, I'm going back here before you, before you walk out on me. See, Howard's already walking out on me because he's a big selfie fan. <laughs> he's going to work. That's where he's at. Is it biblical? Uh, pretty biblical. Pretty biblical. The idea here is not that if you've ever taken a selfie, you've got problems. But the idea is that selfish conceit, that vain conceit here, this selfish pursuit of some kind of empty praise is going to leave us uh, to where we really, frankly, can't get along. Now, I really wish I would have had time this week to ask uh, um, my leader about this because he knows a lot more about this stuff um, th than I do. But um, I read this week uh, about, uh, and I'm loving it, like out in the, in the field at the school this week, there were probably 30 geese just sitting, you know, looking for... Looking for um, uh, worms and that kind of stuff, and they're, otherwise they're just kind of sitting. I, I don't know if they're headed south or headed north. You know, I don't know that whole deal. But but I began to read this week about bigger birds like geese and pelicans 
create a really significant updraft by flapping their wings. Therefore, a bird that flies behind and slightly below another one receives some additional lift from the guy in front of him. Okay? Uh, I like the nodding of the head. Evidently, you've done more research on this than I have, which is okay. Um, another benefit of this is they can see each other. So they fly in a V. They can see each other. They want to make sure, hey, wait a minute. Harold dropped out. Where did he go? Okay. <laughs> uh, they can see each other, and they can communicate. So that's why when they fly over your yard when you're grilling, okay, that, this has happened to me a hundred times, you're grilling, and all of a sudden, wah, 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 it's like, what's going on? Uh, they're checking on, they're trying to find Harold. So, uh, uh, I'm just saying, this, this is all documented. All right, so, but here's the thing I didn't know. I kind of could have assumed it, I guess. But the guy in front has the most wind resistant of the whole V. But he doesn't stay there. I've never caught, I've never watched them long enough to notice that evidently, the guy in front takes it as long as he can, and then he drops to the back where he gets to take a bit of a free ride for a while. Somebody else comes to the front, and now they're flapping against the wind. That's very interesting to me. The birds farthest from the front have the easiest flight. So over a length of time, you can witness this graceful acrobatic move and the leader drops back and somebody else goes to the front to take the lead. Each goose is not looking to its own interests, but each goose is looking to the interest of the whole group. And so I'm going to say to you, Philippians 2 says to you and me, be goosey. <laughs> okay, Pat, you asked me. That's biblical. That's biblical, Pat. Okay, just saying. All right, now. <laughs> yeah, boy, don't quote me, please. Okay, let's, let's go to verse 5, because here's the crux of all this. Uh, in, in a huge way, here's the crux of all this. Um, um, what literally the gospel is doing is turning our me-first world upside down. We live in a me-first world. We just do. Paul did. 2,000 years later, we're still living in that. And so the gospel flips it upside down. And Jesus gives us an example of it. And Paul's going to talk about the example right here in this wonderful poetry. John, could I get you to start with verse 5 from Philippians 2 and read down through 11. We will worship with you as you read. Isn't it beautiful? Isn't it beautiful? It would be beautiful if it weren't profoundly true, but it, the fact that it is true, profoundly so, makes it even more beautiful. 
and even more poetic. Verse 5 is a pivotal verse. It just kind of gets us in place to deal with what's to come beginning in verse 6. And what I would say to you is the pivot that Paul is trying to make here, and I'm, I'm just going to cast it in terms of relationships. Think about the most trying, most difficult relationship that you deal with today. And by the way, don't point at anybody in the room. <laughs> we need to catch this. In our relationships, think like Jesus does. The idea here is my mind must become like his. My mind, what I think about, has to be like he thinks. Okay? So beginning in verse 6, uh, Paul backs up to tell you his, to begin to deal with his example here. And he says here that Jesus knew completely. He knew what it was to be fully God. This is profound and important here. Now, I want us to catch this. Uh, would somebody go to Mark 16, 12? Mark 16, 12. Cindy, thank you. We'll get there in just a minute. Okay, so the idea, um, um, uh, there is a word here that's used in verse 6. Um, it is, it's translated in my Bible he existed in the form of God. What does it say in your Bible? Hey, equality with God. Does it in some of your Bibles say um, very nature? Okay, so that's the same word that's used as form in my particular translation. And it's used as form in uh, Mark 16, 12. This is post-resurrection, and it's saying Jesus appeared in a particular form. Okay, that means that's what he looked like. That was his appearance. So the idea here in verse 6 from Philippians 2 is that his form is just like God. In the NIV, it calls it the very nature. Uh, what I've got to deal with here is that evidently he knew what it was was to be fully God, but according to verse 6, he didn't regard equality with God, according to my particular translation, something to be grasped. What does it say in yours? Used for his own advantage. Used for his own advantage. What else do I hear? Clung to, clinged to. Say so, so the idea is he didn't consider it something this idea that he was in appearance, that he was in the form of God, that he was fully God, he didn't consider that to be something to hold on to. That is really critical for you and me because if he had hung on to it, the prince of heaven, you and I would not know each other. We would not know salvation. He had to become like us. So, the idea here is just profound. He didn't hold on to his, this godness. And we're going to talk about the extent of that. Okay, so his nature allowed him, okay, being fully God and knowing completely who he was. You catch that in verse 7? He emptied himself. Now, who did the research? What does the word kenosis mean? This is called the kenosis passage. Anybody read about it? Louise does. Louise knows. <laughs> Anybody do it? 
Okay? Literally, it's the word. The word kenosis just means it's not a biblical word, necessarily. But it's the idea here in Philippians 2, 7, that he emptied himself. He emptied himself. Having all this divine nature, okay? His nature allowed him, not in spite of, but because of, he, it allowed him to empty himself. Now, uh, if I look at my particular Bible, it says there uh, in verse 7, it says uh, he emptied himself, but there's a note. What does yours say? He took on the nature of a servant. So mine, mine says he laid aside his privileges. Now, now you got to catch this. This wasn't something he was forced to do. He did it voluntarily. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago when we celebrated the incarnation of Jesus. God putting on flesh and walking among men. It couldn't be more profound than this. So the idea here is um, he made himself nothing. That's what the NIV says. My question is, uh, a, a parallel, you could argue that a parallel passage is John 1, 1 14, where it says um, that that um, uh, he for the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. Uh, Eugene Peterson uh, paraphrases that and says, uh, the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. Wow. So how fully did he do this? How far did he go? How important is this? It, well, I'm going to tell you, it's more important than you can imagine um, but um, the idea is, how fully did he move into my neighborhood? That's an important issue for me. I read this week about a guy by the name of Thomas Mott Osborne. In uh, October of 1914, Osborne entered Auburn Prison in upstate New York. And like all the other prisoners, he was photographed and fingerprinted and stripped of all his possessions. He was issued a set of prison grays and led to a cell four feet wide by seven and a half feet long and seven and a half feet tall. The only difference between prisoner 33,333X and any other of the other 1,329 inmates in the prison that day was the issue of freedom. On his command, he could leave the prison anytime he wanted to. After his appointment to Governor Saltzer's State Commission on Prison Reform, Osborne made it his mission to live as one of the inmates, to study their experience, and to emerge as their advocate. He voluntarily laid aside his, voluntarily laid aside his freedom to experience life behind bars. He slept in a dark, drafty cell just like theirs. He ate their food and labored as they did. He even endured their most dreaded punishment, a night in, quote, the box, end quote. While he could order his own release at any time, he was nevertheless confined. He wrote, I'm a prisoner, locked, double locked. By no human possibility, by no act of my own, can I throw open the iron gating which shuts me from the world into this small stone vault. I'm a voluntary prisoner, it's true. Nevertheless, even a voluntary prisoner can't unlock the door of his cell. 
Just as Osborne was at once free yet confined to prison, Chuck Swindoll says, Jesus was omnipotent, yet helpless as an infant, dependent on his mother's milk for survival. He set it aside. He emptied himself. He purposely, intentionally, uh, personally did this on our behalf. His humiliation involved both incarnation that we've been talking about and crucifixion. Or you could put even in that line, you could put humiliation. I, I think it's interesting. Um, I, I put a reference to uh, Acts 14 where um, Paul is Paul and Barnabas are doing some evangelistic work and the people where they are are so impressed with them that they think one of them is Hermes and the other one is Zeus they think that they're, they're literal Greek gods and they begin to call down praises on them and Paul just says no 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 I'm just a man but what he's referencing there is uh, their thought, there was a common thought in the Greco-Roman world that um, uh, they were all familiar with Zeus, who was also known as Jupiter, interesting, um, chief of the gods. All the other deities served Zeus, who assigned the roles they played in the universe. But myths tell us that Zeus would leave his throne. This is what they thought, that Zeus would occasionally leave his throne to visit the earth. But the purpose that he left to come to the earth for was to take rather than to give. Zeus would often find an attractive mortal woman and take a variety of forms to seduce and then impregnate that woman. This, was, this is Greek mythology. Their thought was, if God comes to the earth, he's going to take something from me. How different than the real God, not some mythological one. The almighty omnipotent to take on flesh, to empty himself and come among us. This is different. He becomes a servant God. You could argue that this is the, the most supreme example of one writer that calls it um, he calls it downward mobility, not upward mobility. So, his humiliation went all the way. It involved both incarnation, becoming like us, and to the extent of death, even death on a cross, Paul says, crucifixion. It couldn't get worse than that. Because of this, because he was obedient to the plan, this lowering, this descending resulted in God exalting Jesus. To what degree? I want you to turn with me, if you would, please. Just turn. In my Bible, it's literally two pages back. Ephesians 1. Okay, it's, it's the previous book to where we've been in Philippians. And I'm going to read for us, verse. I'm going to begin at verse 20. How... Um, where is he now? How exalted is he? Here's what Paul says in a, in a different letter. He brought it all about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Where is Jesus now? 
at the right hand of the Father. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that's named, not only in this age, but in the one come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. To what degree has Jesus been exalted? To the ultimate. He went back to that place that he had from the beginning, from before the beginning. The central figure of all the universe. It's what he always was. He laid that aside, part of it, and become a wriggling baby in a manger in Bethlehem and a crucified carpenter just outside of Jerusalem. And now, after his resurrection, he ascends to the Father to, to retake that position. I want to say to you, there is no other name that you can call, and that's about all you need when you're in trouble. Can I tell you that? When you're in trouble, there is only one name that you can speak that makes a difference in every situation. Have you ever been so perplexed that you really didn't know how to pray and so you just said, oh Jesus. Do you remember the peace that you encountered in that moment? He gets it. He lived the life you live. Oh, he lived it better than the life I live. But he, in, he in, entered into it fully as part of God's plan. That's what this passage tells me about. Because of this, God exalted him. And the Bible says he gave him the name that's above every name. Now, Paul names here in verse 10 every being who has ever lived. He, he references here Every being who's ever lived. Look at, go a page to the right, to Colossians 1, and look at verse 20. Through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So the idea here is that every being, all creatures, I want you to think of in history the most unlikely person to ever bow a knee to Jesus will. I, don't, I hesitate to even mention any because I don't want to limit this thought. Think of anybody living today that you wonder, oh man, how do they, ugh, what a life, what a philosophy of life. Think of any despot who's ever lived. Everyone who has ever walked the planet and those who live in spiritual places the devil and his minions, all will one day bow the knee and proclaim he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I want you to catch another thought. Not only will that happen in heaven, and not only will that happen to those who are left here on the earth, but it will happen in heaven and in hell. Did you catch verse 10? Can you imagine the picture 
of the one who has known from his beginning who's in charge, Satan himself. The one who every day tries to convince you that Jesus is not on your side. The one who every day tries to convince you that God is not for you. The one who every day tries to tell you that his way is just one of a million ways. Isn't it incredible to think that there will come a day when he too will bow the knee and have to proclaim, okay, he is Lord. <laughs> does that put your struggle in perspective? It kind of does mine. Every one will bow the knee. Every tongue will confess. Whether they want to, like you and me, or whether they don't. That's the truth of verse 10. And of verse 11 has an action in it. Every being, every place, from every place imaginable. And then verse 11 says, Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. The word, in your Bible, the word may be acknowledge. I think that's a weak expression. But if you just use that one, think of those who will have to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord for those who have never acknowledged his existence nor his place in their lives. They will have to acknowledge him. Wouldn't it be better to do that now? <laughs> Wouldn't it be, make more sense? The New American Standard uses the word confess. Confessing. Okay. So here's your application. I've got two minutes. This passage could not be more important. It tells us who he is. So when you're watching the History Channel and they're telling you that Jesus was a prophet, kind of like Muhammad was a prophet. What does Philippians 2 have to say about that? He was God, the flesh. He chose to do that. He came from the right hand of the Father. He returned to the right hand of the Father where he is now. Uh, so when you're watching something and, and, and all of this kind of begins to get fuzzy, remember what we talked about today. Maybe, maybe a good application would be to memorize verse 6 through 11 or, or begin with verse 5. It's a wonderful passage to have committed to memory, this emptying passage. But here's the application that's more important even. Well, it's predicated on that. Think about, if you would, what relationship in your life needs this? In what way or ways do you need to begin? Because the command was, if you remember, imitate Jesus. Walk like Jesus. In what relationship that you have, have you been kind of on your own? You've been taking a selfie walk. And it's time to begin to walk like Jesus does in that relationship. I've got some I've got to think about, guys. No longer looking out for myself, but looking out for them. John, the word that we've used in Stephen ministry since it began here is that word of living in, in empathy for the other person. To, to look at their lives, not only walking in their shoes a mile, but the thought of how Jesus did it for me. To think of them like Jesus would think of them. To have the mind of Jesus. 
It would not be commanded here, beginning in verse 1, if it were not possible. I'd sometimes think, if I, what do you mean have the mind of Christ? That's not even possible. But Paul says, may your attitude, may your mind be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being made in human likeness. If Paul didn't think you and I could do it, he wouldn't, wouldn't have said, do this. And I can do it predicated on the greatest example ever, the one who laid it all aside so that he could enter your world and enter your problems. 